Amen. Well, open your Bibles up to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I made a joke last week that many of the uh, people in our church who are more linear are frustrated that I've been bouncing around the book of 1 Timothy and I'm not preaching it straight in order. They're like, why won't he just go verse by verse? I'm having such a hard time following him. So we're backtracking to 1 Timothy chapter 3 because we skipped the verses that deal with deacons and that second half of spiritual leadership found in 1 Timothy 3. So we're heading back to chapter 3 to talk about deacons, but by extension we're talking about spiritual leadership also this morning. If you had to define spiritual leadership, how would you define it? If you had one or two sentences, why don't you do that? Write down in your bulletin right now. What is spiritual leadership? What is a spiritual leader? What does a spiritual leader do? What does a spiritual leader not do? It's difficult to call it all down. But we know that we have feelings about how leadership should be run. We know we have feelings when we see how leadership shouldn't be run in the church. But what is it? If you had to put a fine point on it, how would you define spiritual leadership? As you're figuring out your definition, let me read a few thoughts from John Piper. He said this, All genuine leadership begins in a sense of desperation with knowledge that we are helpless sinners in need of a great Savior. That moves us to listen to God's Word and cry out to Him for help and insight in prayer. This frees us for a life of love and service, which in the end causes people to see and give glory to our Father in Heaven. I love that he says, All genuine leadership begins with a sense of desperation. Dependence on God as Savior. J. Oswald Sanders literally wrote the book on spiritual leadership. Like the title is, Spiritual Leadership. And I like what he says in that book. He says, there's no such thing as a self-made spiritual leader. A true leader influences others spiritually only because the Spirit works in him and through him. That's profound. We can't make ourselves spiritual leaders. God working in us can transform us into spiritual leaders. Do you have it? Do you have the one or two sentences? How would you define what spiritual leadership is? I think for our church, if I had to put it in a nutshell, I'd say spiritual leadership at Harvest is helping others worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ. Basically, that's what it is. Leaders in our church are helping to make disciples of other people. And our three W's are helping you worship better, walk with Christ better, and work for Christ better. That's what our leaders do. That's what our deacons do. That's what our elders do, our small group leaders. In a nutshell, that's what they do. Well, the, the thing about spiritual leadership is, it's not like our leaders have to live up to some bar. And, you know, the rest of you are like, oh, glad I'm not a leader. I'd have to abide by those things. Leaders are supposed to be a pattern for other disciples to follow. So as we learn about spiritual leadership here, we really learn what God has in store for your spiritual growth. So why don't we pray, and then we'll get into the Word and find out what it means to pursue spiritual leadership in the church. Let's pray. Father above, we know that you want the leaders in this church to lead, to be godly, to be zealous for what is right, to be loving with others. So speak to our church today, speak to our leaders today, and enable us to lead well, and enable those who are following our lead, Lord, to see our example, and also to learn what Christ-likeness means from all we do. We do pray this, Lord, and your blessing upon this message. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, are you there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8? If you're there, say, go Hawks. That wasn't convincing. <laughs> 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. It says this. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons as they prove blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we're actually going to take three weeks going through this passage. So this is just the intro This is going to take a while to get through, but circling back at verse 8, it starts by saying this, deacons. There's this word, this strange-sounding word, deacon. What is it? Where did it come from? Well, there were two offices in the New Testament that were established in the church, elders and deacons, and the deacons were established in Acts chapter 6, I believe, where the first seven deacons were chosen to bear the office of deacon. So that's kind of where it grew out of, and then there were deacons, you know, in, in all the churches. The deacons were supposed to support the elders and the pastors in the work uh, so that the church and the gospel could advance rapidly. Write this down. Number one, it gives us a definition of what these deacons are. Deacons lead by serving in the church. You can fill that in. Deacons lead by serving in the church. We got the word deacon from the Greek. If you look at the Greek, you'd be like, wow, that looks a whole lot like our word Deacon, it's transliterated, which means we just lifted it off the Greek and we turned it into an English word that sounds a whole lot like what it sounded like in Greek. Um, But it actually, if you wanted to pick the English equivalent of the word, you'd probably just say table waiter. The word deacon just means servant or table waiter. So check this out. Here's a picture of a table waiter. That's a deacon. And I don't know, when you grew up, maybe your church didn't have elders, so the deacons were the thing. Like, they were the leaders, and we looked up to these men, and they were like, stalwart, they're amazing, they're fit. Well, that's what the word means. It just means, can I take your order? How many of you have worked as waitresses or waiters in restaurants? Raise your hand up if, if you worked in, okay, raise your hand up if you love that job. <laughs> Very, okay, there's a few people. Tips were probably really good. That's why your hand is still up. Let's face it, who wants to go to a job where all day long it's like, can I help you? Can I take your order? Can I clean up your mess? Can I bring you your food? Can I watch you eat a nice steak dinner? Who wants to work that job? But that's what a deacon does. A deacon is basically a table waiter, and at the heart of the job is service. It's it's a role where you meet the needs of others. That really is the heart of all Christian spiritual leadership. What is spiritual leadership? It's raising the level of spiritual maturity of those around you. If you want to know if a person has a spiritual leadership gift, if you want to evaluate how well they're doing, don't look at them. Don't look at that. Oh, wow, you went to a conference? Oh, you memorized lots of verses? Oh, you own that many comments? Don't look at them. Look at the people they're discipling. And if the people they're discipling are becoming more spiritually mature, then you have a leader on your hands. You can gauge the leader by those that they're leading. 
Spiritual leadership is raising the level of spiritual maturity of those around you. So spiritual leadership begins with your own spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity begins with you learning to serve others. So at the heart of leadership is you maturing to the point where you learn how to serve the needs of others. How can I help you? That's the heart of it all. Uh, if I had to give you like a, uh, some sort of a leader instruction guide, check this out. This is a Lego instruction guide that's funny. It's like the first four things you have to do to put this Lego thing together. Number one, open the box and empty it out. Number two, get really confused because there's a lot of pieces. Number three, sort the pieces into piles and say hooray. And then number four, follow the instructions. If I had to give you the first step of becoming a leader in God's church, I would say it's this. Get over yourself. You can write that down if you'd want. Do you want to be a spiritual leader? Do you want to lead anything in the church? Number one, get over yourself. Because leadership is about everything but you. Many times in the church, leadership becomes about the leader of the leaders. And their position exists to serve them. For others to serve them, but that's not spiritual leadership. You're here on this planet to love and serve God and to love and serve others. It's the reason you were put here. And spiritual leadership should reflect that you know your purpose. I'm here to love and serve God and to love and serve others. If you flip your life purpose upside down, you're going to get your whole life wrong because you're going to think God's here to love and serve me. And you're here to love and serve me. That's upside down. That's not why God made you. And that's a terrible way to lead in the church. What is spiritual leadership? Well, it's raising the level of spiritual maturity of those around you. And it's displaying your own maturity, which begins with you learning to serve others. What isn't spiritual leadership? Sometimes we mistake certain qualities for spiritual leadership, but, but it's not. I'd say leadership is not talent. Just because somebody's really good at doing something doesn't mean that they should be a leader in the church. Talent does not give them the right to be a leader. Uh, leadership is not knowledge. Well, they know a lot of the Bible. They could quote tons of it. They've taken classes. Nope, knowledge does not make you a leader. Uh, money does not automatically make you worthy of being a spiritual leader. Well, they're a big giver. Want to keep them happy, right? Wrong. Wrong. Shame on us when we assume someone's net worth must inform us about their spiritual maturity level. They're doing things right in the world. They're successful. They must be able to handle some leader. Eh, not true. Leadership is not simple influence of personality. He gets things done. He can put people in their place. He can rally guys to projects. That's not leadership in the church. And it's not experience. Somebody's like, here's my resume. I've been on this many mission trips, and I've had this many positions in the church, and I've led this many Bibles. I've got experience. That doesn't matter. That's not leadership. Leadership ultimately flows out of a heart to serve others. Therefore, it's tied to the integrity of the individual. Jesus talked about leadership, and in Mark 9.35, it says this. He sat down and called the twelve, those are his apostles, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
the more you desire to rise up through the ranks of leadership, the more you should really be displaying a heart to be the least of all, to be servant of all. The Bible says, he who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be humbled. And we, of course, remember the parable of the banquet where the fool showed up to this feast and seated himself above all at the head table and wanted everyone to admire where he is in life. And then, and then in shame, the host of the banquet said, Sir, someone more honorable than you has showed up. And then in plain sight of everyone, this person was humiliated and he had to go all the way back to the worst seat and sit by the seat like next to the bathrooms because he took the best place for himself. But then there was the man who showed up and looked around the room and said, you know what, I'm just going to take the least seat because all these people deserve a better seat than me. And then the host of the banquet came and said, sir, why have you sat here? Let me give you a better place. And he got exalted in the eyes of all those around him. The same is true of leadership. If you show up to God's church and think you deserve to be a leader, you don't get it. If you think anyone owes you a leader role in the church, you're misguided. If you think somehow you've earned the right to govern others, you need to get as flat on your face on the carpet as you can and repent of pride. This world is not a banquet in your honor. Others are not here to make you feel amazing. Others are here to make God feel amazing. You're here to make God feel amazing. When you live to honor and serve another, then that person who is the only one worthy of praise, the Lord Jesus Christ, will give you leadership responsibilities. Deacons are supposed to lead by serving in the church. We have two deacons in our church, John Herzog and Ken Teasinga. These are godly men. These are men who work hard for other people in the church. John oversees a lot of our uh, financial policy development, and um, he also handles some of the benevolence work. And uh, His specialty is he helps people with financial needs, particularly um, with Financial Peace University, um, and so John is constantly meeting with people to help them grow in their walk with the Lord. And Ken has taken on now the primary role in overseeing the building and the facility. He spends so much time each week making sure that you have a nice, clean facility to come to that's working well and the air conditioning is on and the roof's not leaking. He devotes his time and energy all week long after his full-time job so you can show up and be blessed. These are what our deacons do. Um, in our church, deacons handle facility, finance, and benevolence. They're actively serving the needs of others in those three areas. Our elders handle doctrine, discipline, and direction. And that's the way we've divvied up leaders in the church. But our elders uh, really delegate so much authority uh, and responsibility to our deacons. We trust them with a lot. And our deacons are amazing. So deacons lead by serving in the church. Now we get this list of things that deacons should display. It says in verse 8, deacons likewise must be, and the first one on the list is dignified. What does that mean? If we had to sketch out conduct befitting a leader, uh, write this down. Number two, make the gospel look attractive with your life. The word dignified basically means you making the gospel look attractive with your life. Um, it can mean praiseworthy, it can mean respectable, um, it can mean honorable, but the idea is that your conduct, your relationships are earning respect for the Lord and for the gospel and for the church. Do you get that? It's not that people look at you and they're like, behold, I have found one to praise and exalt. 
to the heavens. How great thou art. No, it's because they look in your life, they say, wow, you're making the church look amazing. You're making the Lord look amazing. You're earning respect for the church and the Lord. That's what it means to be dignified or respectable. Titus 2.10 has a a word that's within this same idea. It's a synonym, but um, it says that we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The word for adorn means to show the beauty of, to make attractive. In other words, we're supposed to make God look great. Our actions should make the gospel look great, and our relationships should make the gospel look great. People should look at us and say, wow, God's amazing. Um, I, I saw a few pictures over this past week of some moms who let their toddlers dress them for the morning. Wherever they were going, whether shopping or work or whatever, they said, all right, three-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old, you pick out mommy's clothes and I'll wear whatever you decide all day long. Would you let your toddler do that? So check it out. Here's what mom number one had to wear all day long. This kid couldn't decide between the sparkly ballroom gown and the polka dot dress, so you're going to wear both of them, Mom. (laughs) Would you go out dressed like that? Here's the next one. That's a Bob Dylan shirt with kind of a sweater, but then the skirt and the tights, the shoes don't match, and the straw hat on top just for fun. Would you wear that? Here's the next picture. Of course, probably the, the girls like Mom in her fanciest dress with the necklace. Here's the next one. Same thing, same idea, only paired with the, uh, <laughs> like the mustard tights and the boots. And Yikes, and here's the last one. That's quite, quite a compilation there. The coat and the dress and the socks and the shoes, and all day long, she looked like that. Hey, try that this week. Let your youngest child dress you. Let them decide how you look for the day. Then you'll understand what it feels like to be God. Because God expects his kids to make him look great. God expects his kids to make him look great. He wants you to make other people see how amazing he looks through your choices and through your relationships. And sadly, so often with our choices and our relationships, we basically grab the lipstick and we're like, to the reputation of God. We don't make him look attractive. We don't make his gospel look attractive trustworthy. You know, the NFL has had trouble over the past year with their players, and the actions of their players in their personal lives and on the field has, has hurt the image of the league. So the NFL is now trying to help its players see how their actions make the league look bad. You know, Tom Brady, here's a picture of him, and he's in, involved in this big scandal, Deflate Gate. Last year in the championship game with the Colts, They cheated. They made the footballs lighter than they were supposed to be. So they're easier to grip, harder to punch out. So they cheated, and that's probably why they won. Well, the NFL did this big investigation, and it is a big deal, right? If you cork a bat in baseball, it gives you an advantage. If you rough up the baseball when you're pitching, so it gives you an advantage. So messing with the footballs is a big deal. But I read what the league told Tom Brady. The league was trying to tell Tom Brady how his actions were making the league look terrible. So what I did was, I took this statement that they issued, the NFL issued to Brady, and I said, I wonder what that would sound like if it was written to leaders in the church, about the church. 
Surprisingly, it's profound and spot on. Let me read it to you. I've inserted a few other words here to make it as if they wrote it to the church. Here we go. Your actions as set forth in the report clearly constitute conduct detrimental to the integrity of and public confidence in the gospel. The integrity of the gospel is of paramount importance to everyone in our church and requires unshakable commitment to fairness and compliance with the word of God. Each player, no matter how accomplished and otherwise respected, has an obligation to comply with the word and must be held accountable for his actions when the word is violated and the public's confidence in the gospel is called into question. Is that spot on or what? And if an NFL athlete needs to hear it from the league, how messing with the football is messing with the image of the league. How much more do leaders need to hear that messing with the gospel, messing in your personal life with sin, is messing up the church? Leaders need to be held accountable. We have to make the gospel look glorious with our choices and our relationships. Ask yourself in your own personal life, is there anything that's making the gospel look unattractive? Is there anything that you're doing individually that's taking away from the beauty, the trustworthiness of the gospel, that's smearing the image of Christ, calling into question the church? Is there any relationship in your life that is making Christ look unattractive to the world around you? Is there a brokenness? Is there a struggle to get along with fellow Christians that's making other people who are not Christians just look with skepticism on the church? How are you making Christ look to others? Are you reaching for the best-looking outfit with every choice you make for the gospel? Are you putting the prettiest necklace you can on every decision you're making so that others can say, wow, Christ and the Word and the church look amazing through your conduct? While deacons are supposed to be dignified, they're supposed to live and relate in a way that makes the gospel attractive. Then it goes on to say this, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued. So write this down. Number three is, stop being a hypocrite. What would conduct befitting a leader be defined by? Well, stop being a hypocrite. Lead by serving, make the gospel look attractive, and stop being a hypocrite. The word for double-tongued there means... It's a compound word. It basically means twice speech. You're, you're double speaking. You're saying one thing and then you're saying the other. This can mean that the, this person is a liar, meaning they're saying something that's not true. Uh, or it can mean they're just duplicitous. They're in one setting, they're one person, and you get them in another setting and they're another. This is the man who is one man on Sunday and another man when they get home and another man when he's fishing and another man when he's at the ball game and another man when he's at work and he's not the same person. He's duplicitous. He puts on the show when spiritual people are watching, then he ends the show when he's in a different setting. We have high schoolers in our church who are striving to be bold, Christ-following believers wherever they go. And we have others who show up because they have to pretend to enjoy it. And then they go off and they degrade the gospel with their conduct throughout the week. They're one person here. They're another person there. They're hypocrites. Did you hear about the ESPN reporter who got in big trouble 
uh, here's a picture of her uh, basically interviewing, you know, Seahawk player, and there she is, and you put her in front of that camera, and you allow her to interview a professional athlete, and she's nice, and she's professional, and, but she got caught because her car got towed, and she showed up at this place to pick up her car. She got really angry, and she exploded. Have you, did you see this report? So here's a picture of her on camera at that tow company when she realized that everything she was saying was being recorded. Have you seen that look on a fellow human before when they got caught doing something wrong? Look at that face. She was saying terrible things to this clerk at the counter of the tow company. She said, that's why I have a degree and you don't. She said, maybe if I was missing some teeth, they'd hire me here. She said, lose some weight, baby girl. And then the woman said, you're on camera. And she looked up. (gasps) And the tape was released. And everything she said and she thought she could get away with came out. And, And she was suspended for a whole week because of it suspended for a whole week because of these terrible things that she said to a fellow human being. Then she issues an apology. I'm so sorry. Yeah, right. You're two-faced. You, didn't, you got caught. You thought no one would see you on camera being this person, and then you got caught. She thought she could get away with it. There are people in the church who live this way. Do you know people who tell you what you want to hear, but then behind your back they say something else? Do you know people who are different in different settings? It's a show. They lack integrity. They lack consistency. And here the Bible focuses on the mouth of such a person, the words of such a person. They're two-tongued. They say something in one setting that makes them sound spiritual and mature, and then they say something else and you see the real heart. They impress people by their teaching or by... Whatever, and then, and then when they're alone or when they're just with their friends, then the ugly really comes out. They're playing a game. They're hypocrites. These people are not leaders. They shouldn't be leaders. Religious hypocrisy damages the gospel. It's the opposite of spiritual leadership because it's easier to pretend to be mature than to let God truly break your pride into pieces. It's easier to fake it rather than to let the truth of Scripture show you who you really are and to let God build you in to the real deal. I don't know about you, but this is a struggle for me. I don't think anybody is the same person everywhere. It's not like I'm up here saying, I have mastered this and all of you, good luck. Uh, I got to confess, I'm a better parent at home when my windows are closed. I mean open, I flipped that around. When the windows are open at home, I'm a better parent because the neighbors are listening. When the windows are closed, my kids get it. (laughs) I mean, they just, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm, maybe that's just me. But when others are listening and others are watching, I behave better. And when I'm alone, it's easier to behave worse or to parent worse. We're all going to struggle with this. And God needs to grow us each in this. He wants us to be the same person privately and publicly. Here, though, we know that spiritual leaders can't have this massive gap between the private man and the public man. His kids can't be shocked to hear that he's been made. His neighbors can't be shocked to hear that he, his co-workers can't be like, you're a leader? There can't be this massive gulf, this canyon 
between the private man and the public man. He can't be two-tongued. He can't be a hypocrite. Hey, ask yourself, are you settling for a superficial, shallow faith? Are you camera-ready in your Christianity? But then once you're alone and only God is watching, you don't care what He thinks. What does that say? Frankly, when you're all alone and only God is watching, that's showtime. That's time for your integrity to be displayed because you know that the most important person, person has his eyes on you. Who you are when no one is watching will teach whether or not you're to be a spiritual leader or not. Are you pretending? Are you faking it? When you're alone, do you change? Are you hiding it? God's going to bring the truth to light. God can get the truth out. We've seen it time and again in this church. People who are playing the game and going along with it, but something is, nour- something is cherished, a sin is hidden, and God brings it out. Usually he'll bring it out privately so that you can deal with it, but if you harden your heart, then he'll bring it out publicly so that others can see. God's plan A is humility. God's plan B is humiliation. He'll bring it out. We have to be honest with God about who we really are. We have to be honest with others about who we really are. Only then will we grow up to maturity. You're familiar with the book and it's been made into movies and TV shows, but Jekyll and Hyde. Here's a picture of an old form of Jekyll and Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's still a classic today. People still love it, read it, reproduce it. But it was actually written in 1886 by Robert Louis Stevenson. As the story goes, a lawyer is investigating the case for a friend because his buddy... Um, the innocent, good, beloved Dr. Jekyll is somehow being hunted by this Mr. Hyde. And the lawyer is determined to protect Dr. Jekyll because Jekyll is loved and he's good and innocent and everyone knows him and he's got a good reputation and this evil Mr. Hyde is out to get him. But as the attorney begins the investigation, he finds out that the innocent Dr. Jekyll is the evil Mr. Hyde and they're the same person. Dr. Jekyll made a potion so that he can transform himself into Hyde. But why would he do such a thing? Because he knew he was wicked and he wanted to get away with it. Rather than go out in public and say, I'm not the man you thought I was. I'm not the good, praiseworthy Dr. Jekyll, but I'm wicked. Rather than do that, he came up with a way where he could indulge his darkest desires, where he could continue being wicked and another would be blamed for it. But it got out of control. Suddenly, he began to transform without even taking the potion. Suddenly, the dark Mr. Hyde that he used as a scapegoat to try and indulge in his wickedness was taking over his life, and he realized he can't be both. And it was the dark form of himself that would win out. He wanted to indulge his wickedness without detection, and it backfired on him. Many churchgoers play this game. They want to indulge their wickedness and still have the praise of others. Many leaders in the church play this game where they coddle their wickedness and cling to it and they want the praise of leadership. They want to be Jekyll and they want to blame Hyde. It won't work. How do I get out of this? If you say, I am this person, I'm lacking this integrity, I am this hypocrite, you need to be honest with God. You need to get in front of the Lord and tell Him the truth about who you are. It won't surprise Him. What? 
where have you been hiding this side of yourself? I've got cameras in the whole cosmos and I didn't catch this. Thanks for being honest with me. Now I know. As if that's what God's going to say. It's going to be like it's about time you told the truth to yourself about yourself. Then you've got to tell the truth to others. I'm struggling. I'm failing. I need help. I need a Savior. I need the Word. I need others to spur me on. When you're honest with your God and you're honest with others, then true spiritual leadership begins to manifest itself. Deacons are supposed to embody this. They're supposed to lead by serving. They're supposed to make the gospel look attractive. They need to stop being hypocrites and show others that, uh, what integrity looks like. Number four, you can write this down. Now we dig into one specific area that's mentioned here, and that's self-control in a gray area. So write this down, number four. Practice tremendous restraint with alcohol. Uh, the, the Bible brings up the idea of alcohol here because deacons serving in the church in this gray area have to display self-control, self-restraint to others around them. So it's specific. It's something that's targeted. And the word, if you read it here, it says, um, not addicted to much wine. Not addicted to much wine. The word addicted is kind of interpretive. It doesn't necessarily say that. It just says, not holding to much wine. So quantity is kind of focused on here, but it's not just quantity that's mentioned in the New Testament. There are many different ways that we're uh, given wisdom to know how to deal with alcohol. But here the idea is a deacon is not somebody who is given to much wine. The quantity is they're they're not drinking too much of it. They're not drinking it too much. Um, The quantity is the concern here in this verse. Deacons are to practice tremendous restraint with alcohol. They're not to hold too much wine. This raises the controversial question, well, what does the Bible say about alcohol? Should Christians drink? Is alcohol a sin? Well, let's take that one question at a time. Is alcohol a sin? Well, if it is, Jesus sinned because he made wine and drank wine. And so you can't just come right out black and white and say alcohol is a sin, which leads to more of a discerning question. Should Christians drink? Okay, that's a question of discernment reflects that this is a gray area. Should Christians drink? Well, because it's a gray area, there's more than one right opinion. There's more than one individual conviction that can reflect godliness. You see, when you get to a gray area like this in Scripture, sometimes in some churches they try and turn it black and white. They try and make a command out of it so that you know exactly what to do. But with gray areas, we're not supposed to make them black and white. We're just supposed to give you governing principles so that you can honor the Lord Jesus Christ with a clear conscience. So at our church, we don't say, we're going to give you rules for alcohol, rules for movies, rules for your haircut and the length of your hair, and a dress code, and we're, not, we're going to talk to you what music you should listen to. We, we don't do that. We don't take gray areas and try and turn them black and white. We can't do that. That's not what leaders are supposed to do. What we do is we challenge Christians in all gray areas to practice tremendous restraint. That phrase is crucial. That phrase is crucial. Tremendous restraint. We expect every Christian at Harvest to display tremendous restraint with alcohol. And if it becomes a problem in your family and your wife comes and talks to us, we would sit down and say, hey man, listen, you've got to show tremendous restraint with this stuff or it's going to ruin your life and your family. Now, for our leaders, our deacons, our elders, our staff pastors, um, even our 
even our uh, small group leaders and flock leaders, we do have what's called a leadership covenant. This is one thing that we clearly lay out at the beginning of them becoming a leader. We say, you must display tremendous restraint with alcohol. They sign on the dotted line. They say, okay, we'll do that. For pastors on staff here, we say, uh, the way we want you to express tremendous restraint is by never drinking in public, and if you drink in private at all, never to excess, and don't make it a daily routine of your life. Gotta have it out every day to get me through life. That's our challenge. The pastors have to agree with that to work here. Now, some of our elders, some of our pastors say, I'm never drinking ever. Amen. That's their conviction. That's the way they're showing tremendous restraint. Others might have a glass of wine or something in private, but they never display lack of restraint. We hold each other accountable to this phrase, tremendous restraint. We know that you can sin with alcohol, but we don't teach that alcohol is sin. Well, how can I sin with alcohol? Well, if you drink to excess, if you get hammered, if you get intoxicated, you're sinning. Well, how many drinks is that, Pastor? Can you post a sign with the legal limit and telling us what our blood alcohol is and test us in small group? Because I want to know if I'm going past the line. No. No. We're not going to like make you like abide by this artificial standard that is nowhere in the Bible. But I think you know if you've had too much to drink, and that's called a sin. It needs to be repented of, turned away from. You can also sin with alcohol by breaking laws. So if you're not of age to drink and one drop of it touches your tongue, you are sinning. It's a sin. If you break a law with alcohol, you're sinning. You can also, though, sin with alcohol. Get this. If a fellow believer decides that they will drink in moderation and you judge them for it. Oh, you should not ever touch that stuff. You're now sinning. Because the Bible says you can't judge another person's freedom if they're not transgressing a clear command in the Bible. And this happens often where one Christian will look at another Christian who dares to even have a drink and heap condemnation on them or judge their spiritual status, and that person is actually sinning with alcohol because of their judgmental heart. So we practice tremendous restraint with alcohol. Um, What we do is we challenge everyone when it comes to frequency, quantity, whatever, if there's anything that's a concern that you be honest with people, tell them you need help. Some people, based on their history with alcohol, should never touch it again for the rest of their life. They know where it will take them, and they need to warn people around them, if you ever see me holding any of it, you need to look me in the eye and say, you're about to ruin your marriage and your family. They need to be that honest. The Bible gives us a spectrum of theology when it comes to alcohol. Psalm 104, 14 to 15 says this, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine is given here in this psalm to gladden the heart of man. Yet in Ephesians 5, 18 it says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. The leader in God's church should not display falling frequently under the influence, the damaging influence of alcohol, but rather the display of being constantly filled, binge drinking on spiritual things so that the Spirit is bubbling up out of him and controlling his every action for righteousness. That should be the leader that you follow. That should be the Christian you become. Well, when you put all these together, what do you get? You get the beginning of a definition of spiritual leadership. 
leading by serving, making the gospel look attractive, not being a hypocrite, practicing tremendous restraint in gray areas. We need leaders in this church like this. The church needs leaders who make disciples like this. Far too much damage has been done in the world by leaders in the church who don't belong in leadership. Pastors who shouldn't be pastors. Elders who shouldn't be elders. Deacons who have no business being deacons. So much damage has been done, and you've heard it said before, you try and tell people about Jesus and they say, oh yeah, the church is full of what? Hypocrites. But I read an encouraging story about an evangelist who took the gospel into a hard place that I want to leave you with. His name was Yaakov, and he was an evangelist in Yugoslavia. I'm sure you all are not very aware of the political and religious history of Yugoslavia, but basically the church in this country has displayed horrible corruption and has done damage to people, killed people, imprisoned people, um, and yet they look like spiritual leaders. So you can imagine being an evangelist in Yugoslavia, trying to get people to come to Christ when they've seen the church just do despicable things. One day an evangelist by the name of Yaakov arrived in a certain village to share the gospel. He talked to an elderly man on the tragedies that he had experienced, told him of the love of Christ. This elderly man abruptly interrupted Yaakov and told him that he wished to have nothing to do with Christianity. He reminded Yaakov of the dreadful history of the church in his town, the plundering, the exploiting, even killing innocent people. And this elderly man said, my nephew was killed by the church. He angrily rebuffed any effort on Yaakov's part to talk about Christ. Instead, he said, they wear those elaborate coats and caps and crosses, he said, signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs and lives I cannot ignore. They're hypocrites. Yaakov, looking for an occasion to get this older man to change his mind, said, Listen, can I ask you a question? Suppose I were to steal your coat, put it on, break into a bank, and rob the bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me running in the distance but could not catch up with me. However, one clue put them on your track. They recognized your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? I would deny it, the older man said. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say, retorted Yaakov. This analogy quite annoyed the older man who ordered Yaakov to leave his home. Yaakov continued to return to the village periodically just to befriend this man and reach out to him. And out of nowhere, one day, this older man said to Yaakov, how do I become a Christian? Yaakov taught him the simple steps of repentance for sin and of trust in the work of Jesus Christ and gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. And this older man bent the knee and bowed his head and surrendered his life to Christ. Yaakov was confused, but as this man rose to his feet, wiping tears from his eyes, he embraced Yaakov and said this, Thank you for being in my life. He pointed to the heavens and whispered, You wear his coat very well. You wear his coat very well. That man had seen so many people wearing the coat of Christ, doing despicable things. But now he sees a leader, an evangelist, wearing the coat of Christ, making Christ look amazing. And he says, you wear his coat very well. My prayer is that that could be said of every leader in this church. You wear his coat very well. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you for entrusting us with the gospel. We thank you that you allow us to make you look great. We ask for your forgiveness where we fall short. When our actions or our relationships turn people away from seeing the beauty of the truth, the glory of the light of the truth. We thank you for our leaders in this church, Lord. Godly men and women who are pouring themselves out to help others grow and mature. We're not perfect, but we're trying, Lord, to be filled with your spirit and do our best. We ask that you would raise up more leaders in this church who will serve others, concern themselves with the spiritual well-being of others. We ask that you would help us to display integrity, to be the same person in private and in public. We ask that you would help us, O Lord, to display great self-control in gray areas. Whatever we do, to do it to the glory of the Lord. You want your church to be built up, and we know that requires godly leaders. And we just pray your blessing upon our leaders, and we pray that you would raise more of them up. Help us as we follow you, Lord. We pray that your spirit would form maturity in each one of us through your word. We thank you for what you've already accomplished in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.